Hello, everyone. Welcome to the TF Blockchain Podcast, where we interview blockchain and digital currency innovators building our distributed future. I'm your host and founder of TF Blockchain, Jonathan G. Blanco. TF Blockchain hosts premier conferences, events, and media featuring blockchain leaders actively growing the industry. With our platform, we are connecting business and technology executives with blockchain innovators leading the charge. Through our interactive speaker presentations, facilitated networking sessions, and our video and podcast series. Before we get started, wanted to tell you about our consulting arm, TF Agency, where we work with blockchain companies, companies looking to adopt the technology, entrepreneurs and investors looking to understand the space, and with those looking to grow their career in this emerging industry. For more information, please email us at info at tfagency.io. This episode is a compilation of our lightning talks at TF3, our TF blockchain conference held on March 28, 2019. Listen in and hear thought leadership from Christy Lee Minahan, who discusses the role of AI in blockchain, Darren Marble, who shares his insights on security token offerings, Eric Lynch presenting his findings on decision engines on blockchain, and Paul Walsh sharing his lessons in fraud protection of crypto. I hope you enjoy our lightning talks from TF3. So today I'm going to talk to you about block blockchain and artificial intelligence, or building an immutable Skynet. You know, you've always wanted to know, how do you make Skynet even more scarier? Well, I'm going to tell you today. Uh, so for those of you who don't know me, um, this is me. Um, this is also me. Uh, I've been labeled by the media as the uh, developer that's currently splitting Ethereum in two. So, you know, nice achievement for my resume. Um, previously, I was with Genesis Mining, so I have a lot of experience with, uh, you know, proof of work, uh, large mining farms, data centers. I've been a consultant for Fortune 500 companies uh, when it comes to blockchain technology. I've been earning BTC paychecks since 2010. Um, I did indeed spend a lot of Bitcoin on the very first generation Apple iPad, which is a sad reminder of my uh, bad spending habits. I'm a semiconductor engineer, I'm a software developer, and I'm currently Core Scientific's Chief Technology Officer. So I want to have you do a thought experiment. Think about how um, blockchain and artificial intelligence synergize today. Can any of you tell me how they synergize? Well, oh, oh. <laughs> well, think about it. At the, at the root cause, it's all about data. See, blockchain is about how do we store data, verify data, and track data. Algorithm, uh, artificial intelligence is about how do we consume data how do we find uh, correlations between data? How do we find parallels between that data? That means that they are inherently the yin and yang of technology, which makes for some great synergies. See, blockchains are deterministic. They record reality. Algorithm, uh, artificial intelligence, is problemistic. And it records a, a version of, that we want to be of reality. Um, ultimately, Blockchain and artificial intelligence, when used together, have a lot of synergies that can help accelerate your, your company. So one of the great things is, as I touched on today, blockchain actually incentivizes contribution. Think about AI models today. AI models are actually hoarded inherently by large companies. Why? Because it takes a lot of electricity, 
a lot of data, a lot of time to actually make an inherent model that's that has value. And then you do not want to release that to the public. This is one thing that has not been solved by blockchain yet. Now imagine if all of a sudden interacting with that model was incentivized. Interacting with that model paid you out in some way. You would inherently get better data. That would be fantastic, right? What about if, you, if companies all of a sudden had a steady revenue stream for model usage, for sharing their model? What if they didn't have to worry about how do I get back all of that contribution I put into that model? This is one of the things that blockchain can solve for artificial intelligence. Now, when you're trying to build your immutable Skynet, you also want to incentivize people to interact with Skynet. I mean, it needs better data on the, uh, on the target it's going to destroy. Now, the other thing is about artificial intelligence is storage is expensive. So think about self-driving cars. They usually consume around anywhere from two terabytes of data per day to 30 terabytes of data. Your self-driving car is going to need to upload that data in some manner. How do you do that? How do you solve that problem? Well, today there's no good solution. Do you just plug in an Ethernet cable and you know, upload it to the internet? So a lot of the experiments in blockchain technology about how we do decentralized storage can apply to artificial intelligence. Now we haven't solved the throughput problem right now with blockchain. You know, it's quite, it's quite slow to upload data to say the SIA blockchain, but imagine in two to three years, what will happen? Imagine if all of a sudden your car could start uploading that data to the edge network on the blockchain, secure, verified, validated. The other thing is that there is no single point of failure. I touched on this a little bit before, but the blockchain is inherently more secure than storing my data in a data center. There are, there are not single points of failure in traditional data centers, but there are less. There are, um, there's a smaller attack service. So if Mr. Robot has told us anything, it's pretty easy you know, to, go, to, go, uh, to go destroy a target if you really want to. So no one point of failure is inherently important to any artificial intelligent company now. And they go out of their way to incentivize and to um, back up their data, and it gets very expensive. Now think about your immutable Skynet. You want to ensure that no one human can take down your Skynet. Well, the blockchain is the perfect way to upload Skynet's conscious. Think about speed, security, and sincerity. I just want to briefly touch on these topics. So one of the important things is speed, speed of throughput, speed of training your model, speed of the hardware that your, uh, that your AI is running on. Blockchain has actually taught us a lot about speed when it comes to hardware. Most people don't realize this, but in 2016, AMD started doing a lot of research into what crypto miners were doing with their cards. They were quite, they were quite amazed. They were like, hang on, how did this guy get a 50% speed up? Well, they actually learned about memory timings uh, thanks, thanks to crypto miners. So that taught them, hang on, we can start applying this to other areas of our technology. We can apply it to gaming. We can apply it to artificial intelligence. Think about security. Blockchain has taught us a lot about how we secure models. I talked on this before. Think about sincerity. Sincerity is a very important property of any training set. How do you prove that the data is sincere? How do you prove that it is valid? Proof of work is great for this. Think about it. Animals learn this in the animal kingdom. When a, when a dog wags its tail, you know that it's sincere in its emotions because it's expending energy. 
It's the same thing with artificial intelligence. If there is a unit of work spent, you know that that data is valid. You know it can be trusted. The blockchain records that, which helps us get better data. So um, I'll open it up to questions because we have two minutes. Sorry I raced through that. Quite nervous, but I'm sure. Does anyone have questions? No, I'm surprised. So I was curious about your, uh, your point about um, AI and mm -hmm. uh, blockchain um, mm -hmm. and how they would be coupled together. M one thought is obviously with AI data in, I mean garbage in, garbage out, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to have good, uh, good data. And maybe one way is to, um, is to put, or is to, to put a timestamp, not a timestamp, sorry, to put, um, to put not necessarily your data on the, on the blockchain, but you can have the ownership of that, of that data on the blockchain mm -hmm. so that, you know, you can share it and you can earn royalties, for example. Mm -hmm. What are some other potential use cases that you can think of? Um, so a really good one is done by neuromation. So think about Mechanical Turk today. Uh, you know, it incentivizes synthetic, uh, synthetic data creation and labeling. You can do the same thing with blockchain, and Neuromation solved this. So they started uploading all of their data sets to the blockchain, and then they said, okay, people who will label this data for us will get paid out in tokens, which ultimately can be converted into Bitcoin. This is a great use case. Synthetic data is actually really, really valuable. Um, pretty much every rendering uses synthetic data. Uh, Amazon's warehouse uses synthetic data. Everything that you know has to do with how you shop or how you interact with online stores uses, uses synthetic data creation. So um, great incentivization models for synthetic data help us get better data. Um, given that both AI and blockchain as industry progress goes are in their infancy, mm -hmm. Um, so are there any concrete examples of efforts, whether enterprise or otherwise, where they're trying to mix the two together and actually harness the possibilities? Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, there's a lot of examples. There's Walmart, there's IBM. All of them are figuring out how they can go and combine artificial intelligence and blockchain. And remember, at the end of the day, it's just data. Um, so that's a great example. Neuromation that I talked briefly about, they actually partnered with Toyota. So to start creating all the synthetic data for a lot of t Toyota's renderings. Great industry example right there. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I am the CEO of Issuance. We are developing a capital formation platform that helps issuers raise capital from investors. And interestingly and uniquely, we pay investors to review and diligence deals. Uh, we've also marketed a number of security token offerings. We've worked with Kodak Coin, T0, and Agenis. I co-founded CrowdfundX. We cut our teeth marketing Reg A plus IPOs to NASDAQ, NYSE, OTC Markets Group. And we rolled that up into issuance. And I'm creating a reality series called Going Public, where we follow a number of Reg A plus IPO issuers on their journey to NASDAQ and that's going to be distributed on one of the largest business news networks in the country. Uh, and for those of you starting a business, the keys to business success, never give up, be persistent, and focus on one thing, do one thing better than anybody else. So this session is a, is a quick one, and it's security tokens, fact or fiction. And so I'm gonna kind of fact check myself 
because I came here six, seven months ago talking about digital securities or security tokens being the next mega trend in capital markets. This was, in fact, a slide I presented. This was really a thesis at the time. What is the value proposition for a company raising capital through a security token offering, uh, and what's in it for investors? And so you've probably seen this thesis before, the idea that there's secondary liquidity, 24-7 trading, uh, fractionalization. Um, this was the value proposition, and there's been a lot written about this. Last week, I got referred to a company that is adamant to do a security token offering. And I said, have you talked to any tokenization platforms? You've got you know, Securitize, Polymath, uh, Harbor, others. And they had talked to one of the leading platforms. And the platform apparently told them that their clients are raising $20 million uh, on the low end and sky's the limit on the high end. So if you know, imagine hearing that, you would think, man, I'm, this is the way to go. I'm going to do a security token offering. Well, here's the reality. Most security token offerings are failing to fund. So most of the companies trying to use this new technology, this new strategy to raise capital, are not raising capital. There is a surplus of early stage deals. So the majority of companies attempting to raise capital through security token offering are early stage, high risk startups or distressed assets. Okay, there's a surplus of those types of issuers. In reality today, there's very little liquidity in the secondary markets. Now, maybe we shouldn't have expected, and I don't think anybody expected that digital securities were going to trade like shares of Apple the minute there was a security token exchange. But the volume for the handful of security tokens that successfully raised capital listed in our training is somewhere between zero and $10,000 a day. Now, maybe, again, that's to be expected. This is a new, nascent industry. NASDAQ wasn't built overnight, but there's very little liquidity on these secondary trading venues. The momentum, right? Who are the companies raising capital? It's the infrastructure companies. And infrastructure is primary issuance, compliance, cap table management, capital raising, and secondary trading. That's the insiders, okay? It's an infrastructure, uh, there's infrastructure momentum. And by the way, those companies are not selling security tokens for the most part. 95% of the infrastructure companies are selling traditional equity because that's what most investors want. So this is kind of the reality of where we're at today. And this is just a quick chart I put together. This is where I'm seeing the demand in this industry. The demand is squarely in infrastructure companies. Again, secondary trading. If you're building a security token exchange, there's probably going to be interest in your deal. If you're doing a primary issuance platform, there's probably going to be some interest in, in your deal, even though I think it's a very crowded sector. Um, there's talk about tokenized real estate. You see press releases for that. There's talk about tokenized VC. You see press releases for that. But I didn't put those in the bullseye because I don't think those deals are actually raising capital. I think companies are telling people they're going to raise capital, but there's very limited investor demand for those deals right now. If you are not any one of those businesses, you've got some business that does $50 million a year and you want to do a security token offering, you're outside the circle. There's zero demand for your, for your deal. Okay? So if you are not in that circle, the chances of you failing are probably 100%. Um, and, and that's just how I think that it's, it's going down. So this was a piece of feedback I wanted to share. We got this from an investor. We're advising a tokenized venture fund. 
that has venture capitalists as principals, real savvy investors, good resumes, and part of their pitch is that the LPs putting money into this fund are going to be able to trade out. There's going to be this liquidity. And the family office did a due diligence review of the deal. And they came back and they had a long list of feedback for why they passed. But they said the view is that this secondary liquidity is an attractive future feature. That instead of taking additional risk now, it was viewed as a feature for a future investment, meaning that family office would rather buy the digital securities on a secondary trading platform than take the risk now. So it's really interesting what happens when you push that thesis of liquidity. Sometimes say, great, call me when you're liquid. Go raise your money from somebody else other than me. And when you've got all this liquidity and disclosure, maybe I'll be a little bit de-risked then. Quick deal analysis. We're working with a publicly traded company called Agenus. They are a NASDAQ-listed biotech company on the East Coast in Boston. Uh, they've been publicly traded for maybe 15 years, $300 million market cap, and they develop innovative immuno-oncology cancer treatments. That means they're using the immune system to attempt to fight cancer. Uh, this company was willing to take a risk, and they're pioneers. They're running a security token offering for one of their drugs, their lead cancer treatment drug. Um, and this is the first publicly traded company in the U.S. to do such an offering. The challenge that this company is having is that when they go out and they talk to some of you guys like you in this room that might know the digital security pitch and value prop, I bet you don't understand how molecules work, and you probably never will or, or have an interest. So the, the crypto guys in the digital asset funds do not understand molecules. There's no way for them to evaluate this deal. The institutional investors need to be sold on the value prop of security tokens. That's the easier sell. So this deal was announced maybe two months ago. Uh, we're working on it. Atomic Capital is in the deal. They're doing tokenization. In success, we think this could be game-changing. But there's this struggle because, again, this is out of that circle, and this is a hard sell, right? The, the industry guys don't know biotech. The biotech guys don't know tokenization. So it's a bit of a, str a struggle. I think some of the basic solutions for how this industry grows are to educate investors. Investors have to buy into the thesis of digital securities more than anybody else. The issuers are clearly excited about the opportunity to raise capital, but if investors don't buy it, if there's no gain for the investors, then it's irrelevant. I also think that this industry needs to decouple itself from Bitcoin and crypto. I think traditional investors hear digital securities or security tokens, and they have some instant perception that this is somehow tied to Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, when in fact it is not, and that deters them from even looking at the deal. I think we need more publicly traded companies like Agenus to come to market, and those pioneering issuers are really the ones who are going to set the trend and drive true institutional adoption. And issuers have to offer favorable terms. I said this six months ago, and I say it every month. Investors have to win. If investors lose money buying security tokens, this industry is done before it starts. Investors have to win. My forecast, I think tokenization is going to zero. It's surprising to me that there's a dozen companies that are all competing in the tokenization space. Now think about this for a second. If one of the value propositions of digital securities is supposed to be that this is somehow faster, easier, and more efficient. The idea that there's a tokenization process that has a time component and a cost component flies in the face of that efficiency. So 
I think that tokenization is already becoming commoditized. I think it's already generic. And I think the uh, providers that can offer tokenization at low to no cost and have it work will win. The market hinges on investors making money. If investors can make money buying, trading digital securities, we will see the industry grow. I think there's going to be consolidation beginning next year. All of the infrastructure companies today, 80% of them will be gone. Most of them will have failed. A handful of them will have been acquired by larger businesses. And last but not least, I think brand builders will win. There's so much focus in this industry on the technology and the blockchain components of the business. But in reality, most of the companies in this room and in this space have brands that nobody knows about. If you are not in this industry, you've not heard of T0, you've not heard of Securitize or Polymath. These are brands that have a reputation in a very niche and nascent industry. So from my perspective, the companies that can actually figure out on the marketing side how to build a mainstream viable brand and create awareness, a mainstream awareness for their company, will win. Thank you very much. We have time for uh, one quick question. Quick question. Yes. Can you, can you ask that question again in the mic? Uh, on the Agenas asset, um, assume that's a late stage asset, phase three in development or something. And that would be then having been supported by the current shareholders. So that's going to be effectively a dilution to the current shareholders. Uh, how would the current shareholders accept that? Or are they even required to accept it? One and two, um, for the people who do buy into that, is that only for that aspect? So if that asset fails, say phase three and doesn't get market approval, do they then have That's anything? That's correct. So the beauty of this offering for a genus is that they're able to take one of their 16 cancer treatment drugs, isolate it, and allow investors to make a bet. Okay? And their traditional option, if they wanted to do that outside of this industry, is to do royalty financing, whereby investors finance a particular drug, and then those investors are entitled to a royalty on future sales in perpetuity, which doesn't necessarily benefit the issuer. In fact, it's perceived quite negatively. So the CEO wanted to explore this offering as a way to fractionalize, isolate one asset. The bet the investors are making in this deal is that this drug, which is a category PD-1 cancer treatment drug, if it receives FDA approval, investors will end up getting a 7x return on their money. The other six PD-1 drugs across the industry have all been FDA approved. So this is the seventh drug that's going up. It's in, uh, it's very close for approval. So that's the bet. There is some concern from existing shareholders. There is some dilution to the common stockholders. It is nominal, um, but it's really a pioneering deal and you can take a look at the deal on the Atomic Capital platform. All right, thanks so much, Darren. Thank you guys. Do you have, do you have a question to have them think about? Question to think about. If you have been considering running a digital securities offering or security token offering, the question is why? What is the perceived edge that you think you're going to get with that offering? And if you are determined to do that offering, do you fit in that circle? And if you don't, should you really be doing a security token offering? Cosensei. Cosensei is a DBMO DAPCO. 
for those of you who don't remember DBMO or too young or whatever, it's a design, build, maintain, operate. It's a classic engineering firm. We're trying to do some social engineering. We're trying to apply distributed app technology, blockchain technology. We're looking at building a decisioning engine on the blockchain. So kind of like what they're doing at the core level of Ethereum and others where you're having to go and do it by automation and proof of work, now proof of stake. We're trying to take that all and layer right on top of it to the RFP process, the request for proposal process. I'm a scientist by training, I'm a geneticist, and you know I've done a lot of drug development and done a lot of RFPs and grant applications and seen a lot of them go sideways. The RFP process, the decisioning process, I think is flawed, and I've gotten sick of it. So about a year and a half, two years ago, I asked my board of directors if I could work for another company because that's what my contract said, because that's what I wrote in my contract. And they said, sure, but you gotta have a pay cut. Oh, shit. I said, okay to that, uh, but you're crazy, because you just made me president again. Uh, second time on that position. And I said, 20% pay cut, and I'm working for another company a little bit. Okay, uh, I just founded another company. So Kosensei started. And I co-located it two floors up from the other biotech company and did that for the last year and a half. I've been funding it myself, and I've had a lot of challenges. You know, seeing the landscape change on Ethereum. We are a BizSpark partner. We are currently in private beta, and our decisioning engine is Earnestly. And we think that once we get Earnestly perfected, quote unquote, uh, then we will have a lot of applications for it. Earnestly can be applied to RFPs. Again, I see everything as a request for proposal. And you're either looking to solve a problem or you're looking to take advantage of an opportunity or you're looking for some hybrid of that. That to me is an RFP. So a request for proposal. What happens there? Admin sets up a request. Responders respond. Except a lot of times the responders don't respond because they already know that you're going to give it to your uncle. So you don't get the best pool of responders a lot of times. That's not going to happen with this. Everybody on your responder list gets all the same information at the same time. I think that's critical. And everybody, when they respond, if they respond in time, meet all the criteria, nobody gets to filter that. It goes straight into the decider pool. Soft contract triggers. Yes, you have 15 documents uploaded. Yes, they're all under this size. Uh, that's something that we can do for HR departments, your record of decisioning, for procurement departments. You know, what are we going to buy? What's the next engine we want to put on this Boeing plane? Uh, the governance, that's one of my soft points. You know, that's touchy. Corporate governance, if you're on boards or founders or whatnot, it can get sketchy sometimes. And, you know, God, if that were on the blockchain and all the shareholders could see what's happening, it would be super helpful. So those are big points that I want to go after. Early applications, uh, for the .coms, for the .govs. My wife works for EPA. She's constantly doing these records of decision. They take like 10 years. And then they have massive amounts of software for decision management. But they don't have decision, you know, decisioning software. They don't have anything that drives it to conclusion. So the Earnestly DAP sets up a schedule so you can predict when you're going to have the decision come out. So if you're looking at the next Boeing plane to be built, for instance, or you're in the EPA and you want to know, okay, when are we going to have the rod on this so that we can start building the freeway over it after they're done? We can predict it. Earnestly, we'll set out the timelines. That is part of it. And there's one thing that I just hate, is when we have people 
who are super smart and know really important things, but they don't come in until the last day and drop a data bomb. You can't just walk away from those data bombs. But hopefully we can get those people to change how they behave by saying, okay, well, the rules here is if you didn't participate in round one and round two and round three of downselect, you don't get a voice in round four or whatever the admin sets up. And we're making it flexible. It will basically be an operating system for an RFP. Now, if you want to make it so the CEO gets 500 votes and everybody else gets one, CEO can override anything, go ahead. We don't care. But make it transparent. Make it clear to everybody that, oh, the CEO just overrode everything. And she was right. And she was right again. And she was right a fifth time. And then the board can look around and say, shit, we just need the CEO. And maybe save some money. I mean, it's possible. We don't want to prevent that possible. But we want to learn from it. .org, same thing. Governance, fundraising, financials. The RFP process is ubiquitous. And quite honestly, I want to teach people what is the RFP process, how to set up a null hypothesis, how to refute the null hypothesis. There's a lot of younger people in the marketplace today that don't really get that. They're not trained on it. It takes years and years. Sometimes they don't get it till their 40s till they're versatile in it. We're looking at a marketing campaign that teaches all of that. So, you know, we find that people really don't take into account the value of their people. We want people to feel that their opinions matter, that their opinions are heard. If we can put that on the blockchain, imagine you have multiple rounds of downselect. You're not in something like Slack where you've got a bunch of chit chat going on for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then somebody drops a data bomb, boom, and it's the day before your decision, and now you've got to reset. Everybody's pulling their hair out. No, we see multiple rounds of downselect. And we want to use Microsoft's models. You know, we're BizSpark partners. It's kind of an all Microsoft play. If Ethereum can get their stuff together and get Ethereum 2.0 going this year. Um, and we want to make sure that your record of decisioning becomes part of your record. So when you leave the company, we can see at least top line what were you involved in. What decisions, what size, what magnitude? So if you get terminated for some dumb reason. Questions, oh yep, uh, ask four questions now. I'm at two minutes, 25 seconds. All right, I'll do that. Um, so Cosense, we're private beta now. We'll be coming out soon with our public beta. And I invite questions from the audience. You're all shocked, yeah, go ahead. Right, yeah. Hmm. Some level of confidence that the model that we think is going to work. I mean, I proposed to my team over a year ago, hey, you know, we got to sidechain this stuff. Now sidechain is becoming de rigueur. And the way we're setting up our decisions, each decision is becoming compartmentalized. So making sure that if we set up a doctor for each decision, that that'll still sort of work. Because we've invested a lot of time and money in sort of getting those subcontracts to work within a docker, and then have the doctors interconnect. I am, yep. Yeah. yeah, no, I think, you know, there's also, 
not to shut you down, but IOTA sounds, you know, what Siren Labs is doing. Because once you start to sidechain, then you have to build your own node network. And Siren Labs is sort of figuring that out, but they're doing it on IOTA. So, any other, yes? Right, we're going to go after the companies first because they're the most flat, you know, flexible, and in the same time, start to make those inroads with the governments. Um, my wife is very high up in EPA, and she's like, "Oh God, we need this. Here's grants." And once you get the grant, then you have a chance to start to implement on a small scale, because then you're not really doing anything important. You're just granting around, so experimenting, which I love. So I wish actually I could uh, tell you the learnings of two things. I'm here to talk about cybersecurity in order to reduce the risk of everybody in this room having their identity stolen or your cryptocurrency stolen or basically just opening the wrong link. But later on, I can also tell you the learnings that I've had in terms of fundraising. I've done two seed rounds. I'm raising now. But last year, we were raising for our blockchain project. Uh, 40 million on 100 million network valuation with 30 million in allocation requests with no white paper, no bonus, and no discount because the people who wanted to buy those, uh, buy into that, were using our products and services. And the point is, there's a massive difference between traditional angels and VCs and people who made money and then decided to invest in cryptocurrency projects. Massive difference, pros and cons. So, a little bit about my background. I worked at AOL back in the 90s and was part of the team that launched AOL Instant Messenger, 56K modem protocol, and a few other technologies. Since then, uh, I'm one of the seven founders of the Mobile Web Initiative at the W3C, which is the standards body for the World Wide Web, where I was the first person to rewrite Tim Berners-Lee's vision of the one web. And I'm one of the two people that co-instigated the standard for URL categorization. Then I kind of uh, used up all my karma points by having a bunch of uh, patents issued around malware and phishing detection inside mobile applications. So we live in a world where everything is opened or shared with a link, whether it's a news article, a tweet, a link to a Dropbox file, a link to a website, a news article, it's all a link. And we don't just share those links via email. If you look at your mobile device, you're sharing links through Facebook Messenger, email, Slack, Telegram. Pretty much every app on your phone opens a link inside the app web view instead of the native browser. Even companies that use multiple security solutions still have a problem with phishing. They still have a problem with people opening the wrong link, and they're still concerned about it. In the crypto world, unfortunately, a lot of people don't think about this. We have a huge amount of experience working in the crypto world as well as outside the crypto world. We were introduced to crypto in June 2017 when a few companies reached out to us and said, we have this problem with phishing inside Slack, and you're the only company with an integration. Can you come and look at it? And we did. And long story slightly short, 
We completely eradicated phishing inside Slack in 2017, which is why it's not in the media anymore. So pretty much every crypto company in the world that was on Slack installed Metacert. So it gave us a great understanding working with crypto founding teams, as well as interacting with community members of traders and investors to find out what the unique pain points were and why people were losing so much money. Outside the crypto world, I don't need to show you stats that you can't read, but basically, almost every week we hear about a data breach. In 2016 to 17, 10% of all money raised in ICOs was stolen. In part, that was because of the poor practices of companies running ICOs, getting people conditioned into opening up emails and clicking on links really quickly for special offers, and then also poor practices of individuals when it came to actually sending crypto. This week alone, two exchanges were compromised. There are two types of exchanges. Exchanges that have been compromised and exchanges that will be compromised. So don't hold your crypto assets on, a, on, on an exchange. So I've given you time to read this. If you can read it, now, by now, over $2,000 has been lost in a scam. I don't know if you can read that. I expected some slightly bigger uh, screens. But basically, I want to make sure that you end up not opening the wrong link. So I'll read this out. 59% of all ransomware attacks originate with phishing. 90% of all data breaches globally, inside and outside crypto, start with phishing. 30% of phishing emails get opened by employees. So I'm going to make this a little bit of interactive. Put your hand up if you look at the padlock in the browser to make sure it's a safe website. OK. Not a good idea. 93% of all new phishing sites have a padlock. So what my one campaign, my mission in life, is to stop everybody from looking at the padlock in the browser toolbar. Do not do that ever again, because you will fall for a phishing scam. I have seen community members or community managers in crypto in a community with 20,000 people say, don't be stupid. Don't fall for a phishing scam. Look for the padlock and make sure it's our website. So don't look at the padlock. Put your hand up if you check the URL to make sure that you're going to the right website. Come on, don't, those of you that don't have your hand up, you're telling fibs. We all check the URL. Security companies tell people, check the URL. Employers tell employees, check the URL before you open it. But that doesn't work either. I can catch you out every minute of every day. So I've got a challenge here. Most of you will recognize me from earlier on and the piece of paper. What I can tell you is that of all the people who've emailed me so far, I don't think one person has got it right yet. So you have another opportunity here. I'm going to give out a crypto hardware wallet. It's one of the best wallets I've ever seen. MetaSearch just happens to be baked into it. It's a credit card size wallet with a Bluetooth secure connection to your smartphone. When you send your crypto before it actually gets sent, 
it checks MetaCert. If it's a dangerous wallet address, gives you a big red shield and says, don't do this. So it's the only hardware wallet in the world with anti-phishing, anti-fraud built in, because we have a service for exchanges and wallets to help reduce that problem. So I'm going to give you a test. I'll bypass this demo. OK, you probably can't see that. So I'll, I'll zoom in a little bit. <clears throat> I even printed it off for you to make life easier. OK, what I'd like to do is to get all of you to stand up if you think it's number one. Stand up if you think it's number two, the real website, the real myetherwallet.com. Stand up if you think it's number three, four, five, six, seven. You think it's seven? OK, keep standing. Stand up if you think it's number eight, number nine, number 10. Stand up if you think it's number 10. Very good. No, no, keep standing. Stand up if you think it's 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. OK, I'm going to zoom in a little bit more. You stay standing. You're going to feel the pain. You still think it's number 10. Do you still think it's number 10? OK, it's missing the emoji, which looked pretty cool when it's not on the screen like that. But that A is called a special character. You can sit down there. Thank you very much. You just lost all your crypto. Your kids are not going to college next year. Actually, that happens every day of the week. So blocking is not enough, and telling people to look at the padlock is not good, and telling people to look at the URL is not good enough. And the reason for that is because HTTPS everywhere is an existential threat to the safety of the web. That seems like a moronic thing to say in the eyes of people in the cybersecurity world. But the padlock is used for encryption. It just means when you type your credit card into a website, it means it's encrypted so that nobody can steal it as a third party beside you on the public Wi-Fi. But unfortunately, we've all been conditioned to look for the padlock. Unfortunately, the browsers don't differentiate between that basic SSL certificate and what's called OV and EV certificates, which is where the website owner has actually had their identity verified. And let's encrypt certificates. Their adoption is like a hockey stick curve because they're being funded and promoted by most of the big stakeholders in the industry, such as Facebook, Google, Mozilla, Internet Society, Symantec, DigiCert, and lots more. And I think it's because they haven't yet realized and put the two and two together. 90% of all breaches start with phishing. Cybersecurity is the fastest growing industry sector in the world. Cybersecurity is the fastest growing uh, procurement sector in the US. And we still have a problem with people opening the wrong link in 2019. So we need to have a different approach. We do work on that in a different way, but I'm not here to pitch my products. But what I would say to you is just remember, don't look at the padlock. Don't rely on just looking at the URL. Don't be ashamed for standing up for number 10 of about 1,000 people that I've asked. Four people have got it right so far. 
Mr. Monarch got it right in about five seconds. So kudos. With that, I leave you. Thank you very much for your time and attention. Oh, do I have time for questions? OK, one question. Nobody? I tend to like to just have one point per presentation. One of the last blockchain conferences, it was all about two-factor authentication. And four hours after I gave that presentation, my SIM card was hijacked. So if there's anybody in the audience who wants to kind of trick me with anything, anything that I've talked about today, please don't. I'm just too tired. Paul, thanks for your, your comments. Uh, very, um, very compelling. Um, can you expand a little bit more about what's wrong with Let's Encrypt and the, their program and uh, their DV search and kind of connect the dots there for us? So Let's Encrypt is a nonprofit organization that wants to make a more privacy-respecting web. So they care about the encryption. They want everybody to have a website with an SSL certificate that starts with HTTPS. Either, well, I'm going to be uh, diplomatic. I don't think they realize that they should care more. They shouldn't be responsible and they shouldn't be held accountable for all of the problems that are happening in the world as a result of malicious links and the fact that they've issued over 20,000 SSL certificates to websites with the term PayPal in it. You'd have thought that after the fifth or sixth or thousandth, they would realize maybe we shouldn't do this. Maybe this is a phishing site. But they don't care about that. They care about an encrypted web. The, certificate, the other certificate authorities who charge for OV and EV certificates, they could make life a little bit easier by reducing the price and reducing the friction to getting them. But then the browsers need to kind of up their ante too, which is why MetaCert has come out with a new shield, which is ignore the padlock, look at the new shield, because you need to know what's really a website that's safe and verified. Because blocking the bad stuff, that's the one thing that we learned uh, in the crypto world in particular. Even though we have 7,500 people reporting links to us as soon as they're found, it's like playing a game of whack-a-mole. It's impossible to stay ahead of every attack. So yes, it's important to block the bad stuff, but it's actually more important to know when you're actually on a website that's verified, or a LinkedIn account, or a Twitter account, or a GitHub account. You want to know when it's been verified as safe and not a potential mission, miss, um, phishing link. So Let's Encrypt, I think they need to change their marketing. They need to promote the fact that it's only encryption and proactively say, do not rely on the padlock for trust. Because one of the things that's going to stop um, blockchain and crypto from seeing mainstream adoption, in my opinion, ironically, is the lack of trust. Because you know Anthony is talking about ICOs being scams, and you know a lot of ICOs probably were scams. But unfortunately, people are using the word scam all too often for things that are not scams. It just means somebody's clicked on the wrong link. Thank you for listening to the TF Blockchain Podcast. We appreciate your support as we continue our mission to connect the broader business and technology community with blockchain innovators. For the most up-to-date information on all things TF Blockchain, please visit tfblock.io. Please like and subscribe to our podcast to be the first to hear from our amazing speakers changing the world through blockchain and crypto. If you're interested in partnering with the TF Blockchain Podcast, please email us at podcast at tfblock.io. Be on the lookout for TF Blockchain chapters coming to your city, and please reach out to us if interested in becoming a chapter director. We hope to see you soon at one of our live events. Thanks for listening, and remember, 
Stay crypto, my friends. The views and opinions expressed at TF Blockchain events and podcasts are solely those of the ones presenting and do not necessarily reflect the position or opinion of TF Blockchain. TF Blockchain is not responsible for the opinions or content of its guests and does not endorse any particular company or currency. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used to make investment decisions.